I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As the use of capital punishment has receded in much of the world, more and more people are sentenced to life in prison instead. We look at how that affects the lives of juveniles with no prior record and the elderly with no prospects of reoffending. And in a little town of 1,500 people, the ways of the old Russia are still strong. Agrarian, deep-running faith, conservative. But San Javier is a town in Uruguay. First up, though. Over the weekend, Afghanistan's acting interior minister warned citizens not to fall prey to Taliban propaganda, assuring them that the capital Kabul would be safe. But it was not safe. Kabul was the last bastion of government control, and any pretense that the government had any disappeared as reports emerged that President Ashraf Ghani had fled the country. Afghanistan is now squarely under Taliban rule, just as it was 20 years ago when America invaded. This morning, the Taliban released a video claiming a great victory, congratulating the people of Kabul on their new leadership and claiming now is the time to give serenity to the nation. Serenity is distant. Crowds continue to gather at Kabul airport, hoping to hitch rides on the evacuations being haphazardly arranged by Western powers. There was always a risk that as American forces and NATO allies withdrew from Afghanistan, that the Taliban would surge. But with three times the troop numbers, no one predicted the Afghan forces would fold so fast. When the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan at the end of the 1980s, the regime that they created lasted for several years. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. This time round, when the Americans have withdrawn, the regime that they created seems to have gone up in smoke in less than three months. And how is that? How has the Taliban been able to take control so quickly? Well, for the past year, diplomats in the Qatari city of Doha, American diplomats and, and others, had hoped that the Taliban might be compelled to negotiate with Ashraf Ghani's government, that's the former president of Afghanistan, in the hope of getting some kind of power-sharing deal that would end the war. 
But that didn't happen. The Taliban have made really impressive advances on the battlefield. And what's become very clear is that they achieved most of it, not by fighting, but just by negotiating with civilian and military officials to get them to surrender en masse. In, in what way? How has that happened? For example, in the city of Jalalabad, the Taliban marched in without firing a shot after tribal elders negotiated a surrender between the Taliban and Afghan troops. In places, people were cheering the Taliban as they drove through the streets in pickup trucks, displaying their guns. In Kandahar, which is Afghanistan's second biggest city, the governor was pictured handing over to his Taliban counterpart. It was almost like a handover ceremony, like you would get at some kind of presidential inauguration. One local shopkeeper told us at The Economist that he and his family had hid in the basement after hearing gunfire there. But he then realises that the Taliban were firing guns in celebration. It wasn't a gun battle for the control of the streets of the city. So the striking thing about this, Jason, is in some ways how bloodless this Taliban advance has been. But you said some people cheering the Taliban. That, that is, there are some who are welcoming them, siding with them? I think there's lots of things going on. So yes, some people may welcome the Taliban for ideological or other reasons. But I think even among Afghans who value democracy, there's a sense that this Afghan government wasn't worth fighting for, that, that it was too corrupt, it was too divided, it hadn't been paying lots of its policemen and soldiers. I think there was a cascading effect as well. So if you're a beleaguered army unit sitting in some provincial capital and you see that the Afghan troops in Jalalabad or Kandahar are surrendering. What do you think? Do you think I'm going to sit there and fight the Taliban and risk my life and perhaps be massacred if I lose? Or am I just going to give up and go home? Because that's what everyone else seems to be doing. I think that has an incredibly demoralizing effect. And it has a cascading effect that ripples through the country. And, and in this case, helps us explain why collapse was so much more rapid than I think even American intelligence officials thought it would be. And so in the wake of that resignation, then, the Taliban seems to be more or less entirely in control. What, what does that mean for the people at large? The Taliban's political leadership in Doha says they're not the same bloody theocrats who ruled Afghanistan in the 90s. They're not the group that stoned women to death for adultery, for example. But I have to say, a lot of Afghans are just not convinced. So, for example, a 20-year-old called Muhammad Yunus, he lives in, in Kandahar, he told us at The Economist how he feels. He thinks that life has been upturned 360 degrees. This is the end of education. This is the end of knowledge. Now, there is, I think, a clear disconnect between what the political leadership of the Taliban is saying and what's being done. So in, in Herat, the city in the west of Afghanistan, where 60% of the students at the university are women, those women have already been ordered back to their homes. And how has the West and America in particular responded to this crumbling of the government? With panic, I would say. America and other Western countries are focused single-mindedly on getting their citizens and diplomats out of Afghanistan. You know, it's been barely a month since President Joe Biden said there's going to be no circumstances where you see people being lifted off the roof of the American embassy, which is what happened in, in Saigon in Vietnam in 1975. But it's clear there have been helicopters, lots of them shuttling back and forth between the American embassy. I think everyone is trying to do the same. And once that's over, 
Western governments are going to have a very difficult choice, which is, do they stick to the policy they had in the 90s, which is refuse to recognize the Taliban government? Or do they follow the line that's probably going to be taken by China and others, which is to recognize the Taliban? And so what's your view on the way the Biden administration has gone about this? Mr. Biden says he's going to be judged in the end on whether a terrorist threat to America emerges again from Afghanistan. And of course, Al-Qaeda is in the country, although severely weakened. His aides say that advances in military intelligence capabilities and strike capabilities over the last 20 years means that America would be able to preempt them. Although if they can't even get the rapid collapse of the Afghan state right, you wonder how would they get any of these other things right. But what his critics say is that, look, America could have indefinitely sustained the status quo by keeping a small support presence of a few thousand soldiers. And of course, the all important factor of air power. But, you know, Jason, I think there's a middle ground here as well. There's a lot of people who think withdrawal was ultimately the right call. You know, you can't spend 20 years in a country with little sign of improvement and then hold to the view that another few years will make the difference. But would another few months have made the difference? Could they have done this in a more responsible way? I think the way the withdrawal has been handled has been an absolute catastrophe. So we've talked for months about how the outcome of this might just be in Afghanistan that looked just as it did before 2001. And and it sure seems to be heading that way. It does. But I'm not sure that the situation is going to be comparable to 1996 to 2001, which was the Taliban's last period in charge of Afghanistan. You know, back then, it was this isolated government. It was an international pariah. And this is going to be different. The Taliban are in a much stronger position. Countries that were hostile to them in the 90s, like Russia and Iran, are much friendlier to them. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the West to say, don't cut the Taliban off completely. I think we're going to see an era in which the Taliban in the West may have more pragmatic relations than seems the case right now in the immediate chaotic aftermath of the collapse of the existing Afghan state. Shashank, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. 22-year-old It's been a very difficult life, obviously. He's seen his brother and sister grow up and get married without him. I said, you know how hard it was for me to see my people being in his prison, watching my sister and brother grow up, marry, have kids, 
You know what I'm saying? It's like life is passing me by. And he's managed to kind of hold himself together and find purpose in his life through his baking. He's a talented baker and he bakes all kinds of things, Parker House rolls, pecan pie for 800, 900 prison inmates at a time. So you were the go-to guy for pecan pies? I was the go-to guy for everything. Every time they had a special uh, function, they will tell you what, the latest thing... And where's Chuck now? Chuck was actually freed just a couple of days before I met him. He was freed on parole in accordance with the Supreme Court decisions, which said that mandatory life sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional. He's reunited with his family, although his dad died from COVID and his his mom has Alzheimer's. He's hoping to use his baking skills in the real world. Now I have an opportunity to do something for myself. I mean, hey, I know one thing, you know, Anything, you got to start from the bottom, work your way up. Chuck is an interesting case because his release is the fruit of a movement to reducing the use of life sentences in America, which has by far the largest number of life sentence prisoners in the world. It's about 40%. But sentencing people to life in prison is not just an American phenomenon. And uh, the number has been growing pretty sharply. Between 2000 and 2015, the world's total prison population rose by about a fifth. But almost over the same period, the number of prisoners serving life sentences rose by 84%. And why is that proportion of life sentences going up so much? One of the important reasons that's happened is that the death penalty is now much less used than it was. I mean, since 1976, more than 70 countries have abolished the death penalty, and the number of executions worldwide was at a five-year low last year. So, you know, the natural thing and the thing that a lot of countries have, have resorted to is to replace the death penalty with life sentences. And indeed, one of the arguments that people who campaign against the death penalty make is, look, the death penalty is inhumane, but we realize that we have to punish people who commit terrible crimes. So, you know, the life sentence seems like a good compromise. And, and a lot of countries have bought that argument. And a lot of voters have bought that argument. So life sentences are increasing in popularity. But not among some. There are efforts at reform here. Why is that? First of all, in the U.S., there is a large and, to some extent, bipartisan campaign against the country's very high incarceration rate. Outside the U.S., the International Criminal Court has set 25 years as the maximum time before which a prisoner has to be reviewed for possible release. And you've had, especially in Europe, some very important court decisions, such as a decision by the European Court of Human Rights, which basically says prisoners, when they're sentenced at the outset of their sentences, have a right to hope of eventual release. In other words, this notion that just as the death penalty is a fundamental violation of human rights, so a life sentence, at least a life sentence without parole, is also a fundamental violation of human rights. But sort of implicit in these arguments is that there are never really motives to give someone a life sentence, and yet there are crimes that do seem to merit that. You certainly have to take seriously people who say that, you know, some crimes are so terrible that if, you know, if we're not going to use the death penalty, the only appropriate response is to lock somebody up for the rest of his life. 
And in New Zealand, which is considered to be a pretty liberal country, for the first time it used life sentence without parole for Brenton Tarrant, who was the man who killed 51 people in Christchurch at, at two mosques. And the very liberal prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, after the sentence was passed, you know, basically endorsed it and said, you know, we never want to hear from that man ever again. The trauma of March 15 is not easily healed. But today, I hope, is the last where we have any cause to hear or utter the name of the terrorist behind it. His deserves to be a lifetime of complete and utter silence. Yet, you have a dramatic contrast, for example, in Norway, where Anders Breivik, kind of right-wing fanatic, murdered 77 people in 2011. And the maximum sentence that he is subject to is 21 years in jail. You know, that doesn't mean he's going to get out because Norway still has a provision that if you remain a threat to society, you can be kept in longer than that. But the point of that longer detention is not to continue punishing the person, it's merely to protect society. So you have very, very different philosophies. But this kind of push for reducing the use of life sentences is not so unlike the push for the reduction in the death penalty, and it seems to be gaining ground, as you say, but that's still going to leave a lot of people who think that justice hasn't been served. The fundamental problem with life sentences is that in almost all cases, you're punishing somebody long after that person poses any threat to society. And long after, many of those people will have atoned for their crimes. And you're doing it in a way that is very expensive for the state. There are far better ways that you could spend that money. You could spend that money on better policing. You could spend that money on rehabilitation. And even for people who commit terrible crimes, unless they continue to pose a threat to society. You know, a quarter century in jail is still a very, very fearsome punishment, and I think it's probably punishment enough. Brooke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. On the western border of Uruguay, nestled alongside the Uruguay River, lies the town of San Javier. And despite the Spanish-sounding name, what you'd hear spoken on the streets might surprise you. Russian. It's come to be known as the Russian colony because it was first established by settlers from Russia. And I'd heard that the people there not only still spoke Russian amongst themselves, but that some from the community kept to old world traditions, living almost a rural peasant life. Lucinda Elliott writes about South America for The Economist. So I decided to set off and see what was really there. And how is it that Russians ended up there in the first place? Well, people assume that it's because of the revolution of 1917 or because they were fleeing post-war Europe. But in fact, it was so that they could practice their religion freely. Some 300 families from Russia's central region followed a man in 1913 called Vasily Lubkov, who is San Javier's founder and had been imprisoned for being a religious dissident back in Russia under the Tsar. And he led what was known as the New Israel Movement that was outlawed. And together with other Russian settlers who joined him, they set up 
a self-contained farming community right by the border with Argentina. And I spoke to one resident, Leo, who acted as my guide, and he took me to what is called the Sabraña, which is where those who first came used to gather and practice their beliefs. And back in the day, they'd come together here each Sunday. The spirit of these meetings was really festive. They would share verses and later share food. They didn't drink alcohol and they, they followed various traditions and periods of fasting. And most of those within the community of San Javier that first arrived did follow this religious movement. And so a hundred years on, how much of that religious spirit remains among this community? Well, when it comes to religion, at least not very much. Leo told me that today people from San Javier don't observe Sabraña. They do, however, observe certain special days in the year, like the day that the movement was founded. They join together for special Russian meals, for dances, but they don't follow it in the same way as before. But nevertheless, the, the influence of Russian culture is still very clear. Oh, yes. I mean, first off, in the main square, you're greeted by these rather gimmicky statues of Russian dolls. Bakeries in San Javier also sell piroshki, which are these Russian puff pastries filled with cheese or meat. And the distinctive Russian alphabet can be seen above shop windows, in murals, on street signs. The outpost is really even trying to market itself as a tourist destination. So it's proudly playing up some of its Russian heritage. And when it comes to actually being Russian, Andrei Manirko, who is from Moscow and who has recently moved to Uruguay, he told me that, in fact, in some ways, the people are more Russian than the Russians. People came to San Javier 130 years ago as Russians. And to me, they are more Russian than my friends in Moscow because they missed a lot of history that redefined what Russian is. And their language and traditions is preserved. And there is some Russianness which is not observed even in Russian. But what about that sense of connection that, that the people in this community may have with, with Russia? Is there much of it? Most of them don't have a strong connection, but President Putin actually launched a program that began in 2009 to pay for Russians living abroad to move back. And the sort of devotion that I saw among the people living in San Javier has really gained strong support in the Kremlin, where faith and conservatism are resurgent values. You know, the idea that they sew their own clothes, that they observe intermittent fasting, a sense of discipline and sacrifice. All of these values play in very nicely with what Putin has planned for the country. Lucinda, thank you very much for joining us. Such a treat, Jason. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.